everybody. Welcome to our weekly Bible study. It's good to have everybody here. And so, while the last stragglers are grabbing their seats, we'll uh, refresh last week. We began a study on the temple, the building of the temple, uh, through uh, Chronicles and Kings and Second Samuel. Was the building of the temple within the will of God? Was it outside of the will of God? Uh, what can we learn from the story? And we've got a lot this week. I'm going to try to wrap this up and conclude with this study. Um, and so we're going to start in First uh, Chronicles 28. If you have your Bible and you want to turn to First Chronicles 28, that's, what we'll, that's where we will start. Uh, we ended up last week, I pointed out that the story of David and Solomon and the building of the temple, it's really a story about their walk with the Lord. And it's instructive to us about walking by faith. And we're going to continue along that line this week um, with what David said later as he came to the end of his life regarding uh, the message we read last week that God gave him through Nathan. Remember in that message, God gave commands and prophecies to David and he blessed David. And David understood. He understood that it was in God's heart to bless him and his sons and Israel. And David blessed God, remember, with what might be the most perfect prayer any man ever prayed. We read that back in 1 Chronicles 17. Um, David believed God. And he thanked God, and he praised Him, and that's all. And that was, uh, like I say, maybe the greatest, most, maybe the most perfect prayer anyone ever prayed. But we're rejoining the story tonight in 1 Chronicles 28. Many years later, um, after all the events we reviewed last week, we now join David after many years after his sin with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah the Hittite, his failure to judge and, and rule his children properly. Uh, his children, his son's rebellion and their, and, their, and their deaths even. And many wives and many horses and much gold and many servants and many years on the throne. And little, if any, communion with God. Um, and then there was the census and the angel of the Lord killing 70,000 men of Israel for David's sin. And we found David in 1 Chronicles 21 afraid to approach God at Gibeah to offer sacrifices at the tabernacle of Moses. So now let's rejoin the story in 1 Chronicles chapter 28. And we'll start in 1 Chronicles chapter 28. Starting in verse 1. And David assembled all the princes of Israel, the princes of the tribes and the captains of the companies that ministered to the king by course, and the captains over thousands and captains over the hundreds, and the stewards over all the substance and possession of the king and of his sons with the officers and with the mighty men and with all the valiant men unto Jerusalem. Then David the king stood up upon his feet and said, Hear me, my brethren and my people. As for me... I had in mine heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God, and had made ready for building. But God said unto me, Thou shalt not build a house for my name, because thou hast been a man of war and hast shed blood. 
So let's stop there. And I'm going to ask, is that what God said? Well, if we go back and reread the sections from 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17 that we went through last week, that's not quite what God said. And, and David appears here to be conflating two different messages that he got from God through the prophet Nathan. The ones we read last week regarding the building of the temple, and the one we'll look at tonight, the judgment Nathan brought because of David's sin with Bathsheba. God did tell David he would not build him a house, but not because he shed blood in war. In fact, God didn't even give David a reason. God ignored David's petition to build him a house. And instead, he prophesied to David about the house God would build for him and his throne that would be established forever. But David is, uh, David is a man. He's just a fallen man like you and me, and his memory fails him. And the guilt of a lifetime of sin clouds the mind and the judgment. And by this time in David's life, it seems that David has convinced himself of the reason God did not let him build the temple. David says it was because of the blood he shed in war. But we read in the Scripture that God blessed David's warfare. And God even took responsibility for David's victories. Um, in, in 2 Samuel 7, 9, saying that he had given David rest from all his enemies. Um, he says... In, in verse 11. So it wasn't the blood David shed in war that was the reason God forbid him to build in the temple. God didn't even tell him why. He seems to have left David to figure that out for himself. And notice, David tells his captains that he had made ready to build the house, but then God told him he was not to build it. But we read the story last week. God told him he would not build it, but then David started the building project anyway. So David's memory fails him. And a lifetime of sin builds up like a fog, and it clouds one's mind and one's judgment. You know, when I was younger, when I was younger, I thought I could indulge sin and then I could just put it away. But little did I know that my sins would never leave me. Seek the Lord and serve Him when you're young. Don't seek your own pleasures. Don't seek your own appetites and lusts. Because when you're old, you'll have to carry every sin you indulged with you. And it'll weigh you down. And it will rob you of your ability to have your full joy in the Lord. So the fewer sins you have and the less baggage you're dragging around, the better off you'll be. And, and whether David was able to admit it or not, God had condemned David not for the blood he shed in war, but for the innocent blood of Uriah the Hittite. And David may have convinced himself that it was the blood shed in war, but God judged different bloodshed. And he cursed it. But turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We go back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 
And God's curse, by the way, had nothing to do with the temple, but it had everything to do with David's life and his house and his family and his testimony. And we can read it. 2 Samuel 12, starting in verse 9. Wherefore, this is Nathan speaking to David. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. For thou did it secretly... But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. <clears throat> and, and of course, there's no mention of the temple and God's curse here. But you can imagine how this curse preyed on David's mind over the years. And the guilt he felt as he watched his sons rebel and sin and kill and then be killed. And after all the evil God declared came to pass... David just couldn't bear to be associated with it. And so instead, he preferred to think about the men he'd killed in war. And I'm sure that that warfare was easier on his conscience and much easier to bring up to other people as an explanation for why he couldn't build the temple. But as we read the whole story... It wasn't even David's sin that forbid him from building. God forgave David's sin. David's sin merely tortured him, and it confused his ability to even perceive reality properly. And, and, and that's a lesson to learn, for sure. Uh, but as we've established, God didn't give David a reason. He just told David, you shall not build me a house. And now let's go back to 1 Chronicles 28. Uh, 1 Chronicles 28. And we'll pick it up in verse 4. Uh, 1 Chronicles 28. Verse 4. And, and this is David speaking, by the way, not the prophet and not the Lord. First uh, Chronicles 28, verse 4. <clears throat> Howbeit the Lord God of Israel chose me, David says, before all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. For he hath chosen Judah to be the ruler, and, and of the house of Judah, the house of my father, and among the sons of my father... He liked me to make me king over all Israel all, and all of my sons, for the Lord hath given me many sons of all my sons. He hath chosen Solomon, my son, to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. And he said unto me, Solomon, thy son, he shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son and I will be his father, says David. So let's stop there. And again, is that what God said? Well, search the scriptures 
And you will not find God either choosing Solomon to be king or telling David that Solomon would be king or build the temple. In fact, in Song of Songs, chapter 3, verse 11, we read the following. Song of Songs, verse 311 reads, Go forth, O ye daughters of Zion, and behold King Solomon with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him. So the decision about who would be the king, it doesn't appear to be a decision God made. And whether or not uh, that decision was in accordance with the will of God, it can be debated. But there are two things we can be sure of at this point in the story. Number one, David was in some disfellowship with God when he made these statements. And number two, God had already declared David righteous. And God had determined that David's throne would be established. Now, some say God chose Solomon in 2 Samuel 12, 22. So if you want to go there, 2 Samuel 12, verse 22. Uh, this was after, uh, after Bathsheba had born the son of the adulterous relationship with David. 2 Samuel 12. Uh, 22, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 12, 22. Um, and by the way, regarding that child, I believe it's accurate to say that God killed that child because of David's sin. Now, that's a controversial statement, and it warrants a, a study all, all of, in and of itself. But regardless of what you think of that situation, God told David by the mouth of Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel 12, I'm sorry, uh, I think starting in verse 14. 2 Samuel 12, verse 14. Yep. Because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And then in verse 22, after the child died, we read, and David said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and he went into her, and he lay with her, and she bare a son. And David called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. And he sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet, and he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. In Hebrew, it's Yedidyah. Yedidyah. Yedid means beloved. Yah is Yahweh, the name of God, beloved of Yah. Now, some interpret this as God choosing Solomon as David's heir. But in context, this appears to be God communicating his determination to forgive David. And, and God's indicating that he's able to accommodate even David's fleshly actions, even his sinful actions. It's God giving David grace and reassuring David that he's not going to kill this child as well. He tells David, I love this child. He names him. He calls him yet. Now, one may ask, was Solomon's ascension to the throne the will of God? Well, 
The scripture does not indicate that God chose David's heir, but that God's desire is that David's throne be established and that his son rule over Israel. And I believe God could have accomplished this with any one of David's sons. But I suspect it was in David's heart and in God's heart early on that Solomon should reign, especially when we learn later of Solomon's humility and his desire to know the judgments of God. I'm sure both David and God saw this attitude in Solomon early on. So it's not really a question of was Solomon chosen by God, But instead, did David's choice of an heir prove to be a godly choice based on Solomon's choosing of God? And if you read about Solomon, as far as men go, there probably hasn't been a better ascension to the throne by any other heir in in the history of the world better than Solomon's ascension to the throne. Solomon was the best choice God or David could have hoped for. Now, let's turn to 1 Chronicles 22. 1 Chronicles 22, and we will return to David's walk with the Lord in the light of the building of the temple. So in 1 Chronicles 22, we have David giving the command to begin construction. And we'll see in the statement recorded by the Holy Spirit here for us to read, David contradicting his own assertion that he was unable to build because of the wars. And starting in verse 17, David also commanded all the princes of Israel to help Solomon his son, saying, Is not the Lord your God with you? And hath he not given you rest on every side? For he has given the inhabitants of the land into my hand. And the land is subdued before God and before His people. Now, set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. Arise, therefore, and build. Build ye the sanctuary of the Lord God. So don't miss that there that David is giving the command to build. Arise, therefore, and build, he says. That could not be a clearer example of David, that there couldn't be a clearer example of David disobeying God's command that he should not build him a house. Arise, therefore, and build? That sounds like building. I mean, David wasn't going to grab a hammer himself and build. He was the king. He gave the command to build. <clears throat> All right. Now, let's look at the scriptures that describe Solomon and the building itself by first looking at 1 Kings 5. Chronicles, and and uh, before Chronicles, Kings, right? First Kings five. We're going to look at First Kings five. This is soon after David's death and Solomon's coronation, and let's see if what we read Solomon saying here, let's see if that aligns with the true history that's recorded in the Scripture. First um, Kings five. Uh, let's see here. First Kings five, and I didn't put the verse, so we'll have to figure that out. First Kings chapter five. <clears throat> let's see here. 
And Solomon sent to Hiram, king of Tyre. Well, there you go. 1 Kings 5, verse 1. And Solomon sent to Hiram, king of Tyre, saying, Thou knowest how that David my father could not build a house under the name of the Lord his God for the wars which were about him on every side, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God hath given me rest on every side, that there is neither adversary nor evil occurrent. And behold, I propose to build a house unto the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spoke unto David my father, saying, Thy son, whom I will set upon thy throne in thy room, he shall build an house unto my name. And it came to pass, when Hiram heard the words of Solomon, that he rejoiced greatly. Sorry, that was verse 2 to 7. Verse 2 to 7, sorry. So, um... Here we have Solomon repeating the story David told, blaming the wars for his father's inability to build, while oddly attributing the ultimate victory in those wars to God. And so it's this kind of factual dissonance that sin sows into a man's testimony. And that dissonance gets revealed when the children retell the tale. And Solomon tells it. And then he goes through the motions of negotiating a deal for construction materials with Hiram. But we read last week in 1 Chronicles 22 that when David was alive, he'd already negotiated a deal with Hiram. And so, of course, Hiram rejoiced greatly to have the son confirm the deal that he had already made with the father. And now let's go to uh, Kings, uh, 1 Kings 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. And we'll start in verse 18. 1 Kings 8, 18. And the Lord said unto David, this is Solomon again speaking, And the Lord said unto David my father, Whereas it was in thine heart to build an house unto my name, thou did well that it was in thine heart. Nevertheless, thou shalt not build the house, but thy son that shall come forth out of thy loins, he shall build the house unto my name. So these passages reveal that David lied to himself and others, and Solomon in particular, in order to ameliorate the pain of his sin and to justify his fleshly desire to build this magnificent temple. And notice that God doesn't intervene supernaturally to clarify things. God doesn't intervene supernaturally to make sure that everyone, told, everyone is told exactly what He means and exactly what they're supposed to do. Why? Why would God allow misrepresentations and misunderstandings to find their way into history and even here into the biblical record? Well, turn back to 1 Kings chapter 6. Turn back to 1 Kings chapter 6 and let's look at the conversation God has with Solomon where he mentions the temple and we'll consider the question of, of, of why did God let all this go on? If, if there were things that were unclear, or misunderstood, or misstated. Why did, why did God let that go on? 1 Kings 6 starting in verse 11. 1 Kings 6, 11. And the word of the Lord... <clears throat> And the word of the Lord came to Solomon, 
saying, Concerning this house which you are building, if thou wilt walk in my statutes and execute my judgments and keep all my commandments to walk in them, then will I perform my word with thee which I spoke unto David thy father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So does anyone else notice that God prefaces his comments here with a reference to the temple that Solomon's building, the house? He says concerning this house, but then he never refers back to it. He just promises Solomon that if Solomon will follow him, he will perform his word and he'll dwell among the people. He will not forsake them. It's as if God is saying, look, I know you're building this house, but here's what I really care about, and here are my priorities and my promises. But Solomon, being his father's son, he heard God to some degree, but he heard the message his father had taught him even louder. Because we read in 1 Kings 6 and chapter 14, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 6, verse 14. We read, so Solomon built the house and finished it. And we can read back in 1 Chronicles 22 and 1 Kings 8 how David had trained Solomon up with the expectation that he would build the temple. <clears throat> and in 1 Chronicles 22, 8, if you want to go there, 1 Chronicles 22, verse 8, 22, 8. <clears throat> um, we read, David called for Solomon his son, and he charged him to build the house for the Lord, God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house unto the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thou hast shed blood abundantly and hast made great wars. Thou shalt not build a house unto my name, because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. So we get an insight here how David rehearsed the message that he would give to his captains later about, about that it was the blood that he shed in war that kept him from building the temple. And no doubt David had rehearsed this tale in his own mind. But this was just David making up a story. He was making up a story to cover the pain of his real sin. Which, by the way, all of us do that. Um, for those of us who are older and who have spent some time in rebellion against God, if we were to fully comprehend the gravity of our sins in reality the pain would crush us. We, we probably wouldn't be able to function if we actually understood all the pain and damage that our sin had caused. And so we tell ourselves stories so that we can deal with it psychologically. And so, I, as I said earlier, especially for you younger people, the fewer sins you have and the less distance you put between yourself and your conscience and reality in the Lord, the better off you'll be. Had David walked closer with God, he would no doubt have raised his children better. And certainly things would have gone better in the long run. 
because one can read the story of David and David's children and even the rest of Solomon's story to see how much evil crept in because of their sin. And that's why I find the greatest lesson of this study is not necessarily about the temple. Was it God's will? Was it not God's will? Did God want it? Did God command it? That's not the greatest lesson. The greatest lesson is about walking by faith, walking with the Lord. And so I had asked earlier, why did God not not step in and command everyone and everything more clearly? Well, the scripture indicates that God did speak clearly about his desires for both David and Solomon and that he made statements for them to grasp and to understand, but they didn't always understand. And if you don't want to understand, God can't make you understand. And the whole story of the Bible is God teaching people not by supernatural declarations, but by using men and at using men as living and dying examples. Uh, examples for them, examples for their children, and examples for future generations like us. Examples for us to learn from. Like we read in 1 Corinthians last week, Paul explained why all the sins of Israel in the wilderness were in the Scriptures. He said, now all these things happened unto them for an example. Now, let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles 7. We're going to look at the event where God accepts the temple. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, starting in verse 12. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night, And he said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will hear their land and will heal their land. Now... Now mine eyes shall be open, and mine ears attend unto the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever, and mine eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. So as I read that, I wonder, is the term now an indication that God had taken the decision at that time to accept the temple? Is it an accommodation of the fleshly efforts of David and Solomon that God made just for the sake of his love for them and, and, and his love for Israel? And could it be that despite the fact that they did it by their own will and in their own manner and timing and not necessarily in God's will, in God's timing, is it possible that he would accept it and just use it anyway well i believe that to be the case no man ever served god perfectly i mean save jesus christ 
And God, by His long-suffering and grace, has been able to accept and use all of those men who served Him imperfectly. And God allowed for some accommodations throughout the Scripture. I mean, their polygamy, uh, their divorces, their demand for a king. In short, God could just, He could just destroy every man who didn't serve Him perfectly. He could just destroy every man who failed Him. Or He would have to accommodate their flesh to some degree if He wanted to work with them. And so He did. Now, this section we just read, it makes, it makes reference to the pestilence and the, and, the, and the locusts. This is an answer to Solomon's prayer in the previous chapter where he asked God to hear prayers from the temple and to, uh, that God would hear prayers from the children of Israel when they prayed toward the temple. And he, he mentioned the rain and the pestilence and the locusts. But notice that God does not include the necessity for them being in the temple or praying toward the temple. As Solomon had, in, Solomon had asked in his prayer, hear their prayers when they pray toward this place. But God didn't include that in his answer. And, and there's, to me, this is more evidence that God accepted the temple as a mere accommodation of their flesh. We know that God did not require prayers to be made toward the temple. We know that by the Scripture. <clears throat> um, and, and we can find this in Daniel chapter 9 if you want to go there. Daniel <clears throat> chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. And we will start... As soon as I get there, Daniel, Ezekiel's long. Here we go, Daniel chapter 9. Um, and I think we start around the third verse, I think. <clears throat> yeah. So Daniel understands that it's, it's, it's about time for the captivity to end, and he decides to pray to God for the restoration of Israel. And starting in verse 3, here's what, here's what the Scripture records. And, Daniel says, I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God, and I made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love Him, and to them that keep His commandments. We have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from, the pre from Thy precepts and from Thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto Thy servants, the prophets, which spoke in Thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of Israel. O Lord, righteous, O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto Thee, but unto us confusion of faces, as at, as at this day to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and unto all Israel that are near and that are afar off through all the countries whither thou hast driven them, because of their trespass, that they have trespassed against thee. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness, 
though we have rebelled against him. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yea, all Israel, having transgressed thy law, even by departing, that they might not obey thy voice, therefore the curse is poured out upon us. And the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. And he hath confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our judges that judged us by bringing upon us a great evil. For unto the whole heaven hath not been done as has been done upon Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil has come upon us. Yet made we not our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth. For we obeyed not his voice, and now, O Lord God, thou hast brought thy people forth. Uh, and now, O Lord our God, that hast brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and hast gotten thee renowned, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city, Jerusalem thy holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. O God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before Thee for our righteousness, but for Thy great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for Thine own sake, O my God, for Thy city and Thy people that are called by Thy name. And whilst I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me. And he said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Now I read the whole thing because I just wanted it to be clear. At the very beginning, Daniel does not set his face to pray toward the temple. <clears throat> he set his face toward the Lord his God. And Gabriel tells him that from the beginning of his prayer, the command came that, Dave, that Gabriel should go to Daniel. And, and in this whole prayer, Daniel talks about Jerusalem and the people and the holy mountain. He never mentions the temple by name. <clears throat> <clears throat> um, so now let's go to, uh, and, and so that's why I read the whole prayer, just so that you could see that I, I didn't leave a part out there. Now let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 8, all the way back. 1 Kings chapter 8, we're going to look at Solomon's dedication of the temple. 1 Kings 8. Uh, let's see, 1 Kings 8, starting in the 10th verse. 
And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. That's uh, 1 Kings 8, 10 through 13. And then if we go back to 1 Kings 9, uh, I'm sorry, uh, skip ahead to 1 Kings 9, 3. And the Lord said that he would dwell in, uh, this is Solomon speaking. Solomon said, the Lord said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have surely built thee a house to dwell in, a settled place for thee to abide forever. Um, so I think I messed that up. Well, it was the end of 1 Kings 8, 10. 1 Kings 8, 10, uh, 13. Let me just make sure here. 1 Kings 8, verse 10 through 13. Solomon says, I have surely built thee a house to dwell in. Now let's go to 1 Kings 9, 3. Sorry. Now let's go to 1 Kings 9, 3, and we'll see God's answer. 1 Kings 9, 3. And the Lord God said unto him, I have hallowed this house which thou hast built to put my name there forever. And mine eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. And if thou wilt walk before me as thy father David walked, in integrity of heart and in uprightness, to do according to all that I have commanded thee, and will keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever, as I promised David thy father, saying, There shall not fail a man upon the throne of Israel. But... If ye shall at all turn from following me, you or your children, and will not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them. And this house which I have hallowed for my name will I cast out of my sight. <clears throat> and so the Lord accepted David's and Solomon's temple with the conditions that we just read. Even though, if you remember from last week, God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, it included no conditions. 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 15, But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee, and thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. There were no conditions in that prayer. Again, I'm convinced that that was a prophecy not of Solomon. That was a prophecy of Jesus and the house he would build, not Solomon and the temple he built. That we just read in 1 Kings 8. But 2 Samuel 7 was about Jesus and the house he would build. Now, <clears throat> Now, such a place for the Lord, by the way, that He would put His name there, that it would be there forever. Such a place was prophesied. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 12. If you go back to Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 12. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, starting in the 10th verse, we read, 
But when ye go over Jordan, this is God speaking to Moses to tell the children of Israel. <clears throat> but when ye go over Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God hath, uh, giveth you to inherit, and when he giveth you rest from all your enemies round about, so that ye will dwell in safety, then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. Thither shall ye bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice vows which you vow unto the Lord. And ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters and your manservants and maidservants, and the Levite that is within your gates, for as much as he has no part in the inheritance with you. Take heed to thyself, that thou offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest, but in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of thy tribes, there thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings, and there thou shalt do all that I command thee. So the prophecy of God choosing a place was there. Now, some say this was the prophecy of the temple, but the scripture indicates that God was referring to the place of the tabernacle. There's no scripture that prophesies that God would replace His humble, if you can call it that, because the, the tabernacle seems fairly elaborate to me. But it was a tent, and there's no prophecy that God would replace the tabernacle with some magnificent temple. In fact, there's a scripture applying similar language to the tabernacle at Shiloh. Um, in uh, Jeremiah 7.12, we read, Go now to my place which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first. So God had set his name at a place, and he had told the people where to sacrifice. And there wasn't a temple there. It was the tabernacle. Now, so we know that God intended there to be a place of worship, and I'm convinced by the Scripture we know that that place eventually was to be Mount Moriah, where the, what we call now the Temple Mount. <clears throat> Uh, Abraham offered Isaac there in Genesis 22. God stayed his hand of punishment against David and Israel there earlier in 1 Chronicles 21 after the census. And God told David to build an altar there in 2 Samuel 24. And uh, we read in 2 Chronicles 3.1 that Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah where the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And so now that brings up a supposed discrepancy in the Bible that we're going to address. Read with me. Let's go to 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Go to 1 Chronicles 21. 22. <clears throat> then David said to Ornan, right? Then David said to Ornan, grant me the place of this threshing floor. This is after the, the census and, and the angel of the Lord is destroying and killing all the people. And the angel stops at the threshing floor of Ornan. And God says, go, raise me up, rear up a, a, an altar. David said to Ornan, grant me the place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar therein unto the Lord. Thou shalt grant it to me for the full price, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Ornan said to David, Take it to thee, and let my lord the king do that which is good in his 
in his eyes. Lo, I give thee the oxen also for the burnt offerings, and the threshing instruments for wood, and the wheat for the meat offer. I give it all. And King David said to Ornan, Nay, but I will verily buy it for the full price, for I will not take that which is thine for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings without cost. So David gave Ornan for the place 600 shekels of gold by weight. All right, now let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel 24, where we have a... This is another parallel passage describing the same event. 2 Samuel 24, starting in verse... Oh, I'm in 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel 24, starting in verse 21. <clears throat> and Arnoth said, Wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Arnoth said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seemeth good to him. Behold, here be oxen for, for a burnt sacrifice, and threshing instruments, and other instruments of the oxen for wood. All these things did Arnoth as a king give to the king. And Ornah said unto the king, The Lord thy God accept thee. And the king said unto Ornah, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. <clears throat> so first, the supposed discrepancy. How much did David pay Ornan the Jebusite? Okay, and, and by the way, the difference in the name Ornan and Arnah, it's not that way in all translations. It is in the King James. That's just a difference in the transliteration of a non-Hebrew name. Uh, Chronicles and Samuel were written by different authors many years apart. So just a different spelling is all it is, really. But the bigger question, was it 600 shekels of gold or was it 50 shekels of silver? Right? Because the gold, 600 shekels of gold, that's a great deal of money. Okay, and the silver, 50 shekels of silver, is really a pittance by comparison. So this, is a, this seems like a pretty big disagreement in the text. <laughs> well, notice that the 50 shekels of silver were for the, the threshing floor and the oxen, meaning the implements of the threshing and the oxen Ornan offered for the sacrifice. The 600 shekels of gold, we read, was for the place, meaning the entire property. Now, God is allowed to give the accounting as He sees fit in each account. And as you study the Scripture, you'll come across countless examples like this, that at first, they're difficult. They seem contradictory. And if you're a skeptic, you'll just, you'll just say, well, that's one more mistake in the Bible, another error in the Bible. But if you're a lover of God, and you want to know the truth, you'll search the Scriptures to find the answer. And I'm convinced that the answer can be found between Calvary and the temple. The Scripture indicates that the threshing floor itself was the exact same spot on the very top of Mount Moriah where Abraham had offered Isaac. And I'm convinced this exact spot eventually became known as Calvary, where God offered His Son. The place, however, 
meaning the rest of the property, became the larger grounds of the temple that David and Solomon built. And then there are, there are other questions, like why was Ornan, who's called the king of the Jebusites, why was he allowed to retain the highest point on the hill that David had conquered for Israel? A Jebusite, that's a Canaanite. Why is he allowed to have the best plot of land in the city? <laughs> and, and why does the 2 Samuel 24 passage read as if Ornan, in fact, gave it all to David? When we go back and read it, it says, And these things did Ornan as a king give unto the king. Why does it read that way? So I, 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 these I cannot answer. Um, but, but notice, David would not accept the free will offer of Ornan the Jebusite. David insisted on paying for the oxen and the implements of sacrifice right then, 50 shekels of silver, and eventually paying 600 shekels of gold for the entire property. <clears throat> so David, like the Hebrews in general, he had a hard time accepting grace. Now, I've heard preachers preach that David's purchase it was an honorable thing. It harkened back to Abraham's refusal to accept the offer of a gift of the cave at Machpelah that was offered to him by the sons of Heth as a burying place for Sarah. But was it honorable to refuse the gift? I, I'm not prepared to render judgment on that, having read through this again. God certainly required no payment from Israel for his sacrifice at Calvary, and to insist on paying for it would not seem honorable to me. But perhaps this is just indicative of the difference between living under law and living under grace. And perhaps if Israel had understood and accepted grace sooner, much grief could have been avoided. But that's, that's all for another study some other time, either here or in eternity. There's certainly no doubt that God had now chosen the place, the temple, to be the place where He would put His name. Uh, David and Solomon, so God had chosen a place to put His name forever. And David and Solomon, they assumed he meant the temple. But I believe God was referring to his plan at Calvary. And just as Israel forced God's hand prematurely with their demand for a king, and they ended up with Saul, David and Solomon appear to have done similarly with their insistence upon building a magnificent temple. And Israel ended up with this magnificent building that became a den of thieves. But God, in His long-suffering and mercy, accommodated their fleshly desires. But, but, of course, He kept His ultimate plan for the eternal dwelling place of His name on earth. And that's not in a temple. That's at the cross. <clears throat> we read in 1 Chronicles 17, you remember, I will be His Father and He shall be My Son. 
And I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. That house and that throne was established not by any earthly king, not by any amount of money paid for a property or by any building. That house and that kingdom was established forever by the free will offering of the Son of God at the cross at Calvary. So God is great and He's mighty and His mercy endures forever. And He can cause blessings to flow even from the acts of His children that are tainted by our flesh. So as human beings, men seem to be hardwired with a need to earn our reward. We just seem to, we want to work for it. And God seems to understand that. And to work with those who seek after His heart, despite their difficulty in understanding His grace. At least they don't understand His grace perfectly. Maybe none of us do. But that should be our goal, is to understand His grace. He makes us offers without any conditions. All we have to do is believe. And He's been making those offers since Genesis. And the blessings are always more for us, just as they were for Noah and for Abraham and for Joseph and for David and for Solomon. The blessings are always more when we walk by faith. All right. So that's the lesson I get from this consideration of whether or not the temple in Jerusalem was built by the will of God or not. I would say that a preponderance of the evidence suggests to me that it was not. But God showed His long-suffering and His mercy in accepting it as he was able. And from, and from his history of it here in the Bible and all the people and all their actions and their words and their statements and everything we can learn about it, we can get to know God's own heart and get to know him better and understand his grace more perfectly. And I hope we all do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Bible and all the stories that you've given us, that you can reveal your true heart to us, and that you can teach us about your long-suffering and your love for us and your grace. We just ask that you would be with us and help us understand your grace more perfectly, Lord, and help us believe. Help us believe day by day and minute by minute, hour by hour. Help us understand that all we have to do is believe, and you have promises and blessings for us, and we love you and thank you for that. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.